This episode contains graphic descriptions of child abuse that some people may find disturbing. We advise caution for listeners under 13. In the late 17th century, William Griggs was the local doctor of a New England settlement. One evening, he was ushered into a small candlelit room where his newest patient awaited him. Elizabeth Paris was the nine-year-old daughter of the town reverend, and she'd been struck by a mysterious illness. The girl's father, Reverend Samuel Paris, informed the doctor of her symptoms. Delirium, convulsions, trance-like states, and prickling sensations on her skin. At first, Elizabeth suffered alone until her 11-year-old cousin, Abigail Williams, displayed the same symptoms. The illness was spreading. Griggs opened his kit and examined Elizabeth. He found that her humors, meaning her vital bodily fluids like blood and bile, were not in balance. The doctor mixed lavender oil with several drops of milk and encouraged Elizabeth to drink it. Then he handed Samuel the rest of the medicine, instructing him to dose Elizabeth once a day or until her symptoms ceased. But Elizabeth didn't improve. Instead, she began having convulsions and terrifying hallucinations. A week later, Samuel called for Dr. Griggs again. On his second visit, Griggs concluded lavender oil wasn't enough to cure this girl's affliction. Elizabeth was tormented by something much more sinister than ill-balanced humors. She had been bewitched. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life-or-death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. Next week, in part two, we'll analyze all the evidence and try to find an answer. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. This is our first episode on ergotism and the Salem Witch Trials. This week, we'll explore the odd symptoms of a few young colonists and why witches were considered a likely cause. We'll see how fear overwhelmed the community as dozens were accused of conspiring with Satan. And we'll explore how this odd behavior may have been linked to a rare psychological phenomenon. Next week, we'll examine another possible explanation, a fungus known as ergot. Ergot poisoning is known to have hallucinatory effects that may have altered the minds of those living in Salem, Massachusetts. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. 
You'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In the 1630s, the Puritans fled religious persecution in Great Britain and resettled in Salem, Massachusetts. But even in the New World, they were unable to escape crown politics. In 1688, war broke out between King William of England and King Louis of France as the two fought over colonial real estate. King William's war stretched from Europe to India and the Americas, where the French attacked British colonies with the help of indigenous American allies. Though the English colonists outnumbered the French in the New World nearly 20 to 1, Native American hit-and-run tactics caused heavy casualties. Settlements burned and refugees fled to port cities like Salem, Massachusetts, where it was easier to receive much-needed supplies. By 1692, Salem was in turmoil. The influx of new arrivals put a strain on the town's limited resources. Many residents lost loved ones or were injured from battle, and French troops were moving further south. The stresses of war consumed the people of Salem. Unfortunately for the Paris family, they had more immediate problems. Their nine-year-old daughter, Elizabeth, had fallen ill with an inexplicable disease. Elizabeth's father, Samuel Paris, had become the town's reverend just a few years prior. He was known for his strict moralism and often found himself entangled in the feuds of Salem's families, which made him rather unpopular at times. Nonetheless, everyone in Salem rallied to support the Paris family when Elizabeth got sick. Then, in January of 1692, she started to complain of strange tactile sensations on her skin. She claimed invisible agents bit and pinched her. Elizabeth wasn't alone. Soon, her 11-year-old cousin, Abigail Williams, claimed to suffer from the same affliction. In a matter of days, the symptoms of both girls became more severe. Their behavior grew erratic. They flinched, twisted, and hid under furniture as if avoiding their unseen assailants. Both girls spoke in garbled nonsense, interrupting sermons at church. And at night, when Samuel and his wife prayed over them, Elizabeth and Abigail shrieked and wailed. For weeks, Samuel fasted, asking God to heal the girls. 
but his prayers went unanswered. After two months, Samuel sought more secular help. Several physicians, like Dr. William Griggs, examined the girls. But Griggs found he was ill-suited to handle such a strange case. At the time, prevailing medical theory was based on humorism, popularized by Hippocrates in 400 BCE. Doctors attributed an illness to the imbalance of someone's liquids, things like blood, phlegm, and bile. Blood was thought to be made in the liver and caused warm and moist diseases like respiratory congestion, asthma, and sluggishness. Phlegm was considered the liquid in the brain and lungs. It was associated with colds, flus, water retention, and poor circulation. Yellow bile was stored in the gallbladder and was responsible for warm and dry conditions like fevers, rashes, and ulcers. Meanwhile, black bile, also known as the cold humor, caused nervous conditions like seizures, insomnia, and anxiety. Treatment for these conditions eventually consisted of herbal remedies and oils, and they sometimes proved effective. After assessing the girls, Griggs may have prescribed them with lavender oil to soothe their anxiety. Unfortunately, it had little effect on symptoms as severe as Elizabeth and Abigail's. When Griggs's herbal remedies failed, he re-diagnosed their condition. If contemporary medicine couldn't cure them, perhaps the girl's affliction was supernatural. Maybe they'd been infected by the evil hand, spellbound by a servant of Satan. They had to be targets of a witch. Witchcraft was as real to people in the 17th century as viruses are to us today. Human history is riddled with accounts of magical beings casting divinations. In fact, one of the earliest records of witchcraft comes from the biblical Old Testament. In the book of Samuel, King Saul seeks out the witch of Endor. Saul asks the witch to summon the spirit of the dead prophet Samuel in hopes of defeating the Philistine army. The witch obliges, but Samuel's angry spirit berates Saul and predicts his doom. The next day, Saul's army is defeated instead, and the king is killed. The most famous reference to witchcraft comes from Exodus chapter 22, verse 18, saying, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. This quote was referenced for centuries to justify the execution of suspected witches. In the 12th century, stories were told about a Welsh enchanter named Merlin, who was a trusted advisor to the fabled King Arthur. Legend has it, Merlin used magic to transport massive stones from Ireland to England to build Stonehenge. By the 15th century, Christianity's conception of witchcraft had darkened. People believed the devil granted unnatural powers in exchange for loyalty. Magic and Satan were synonymous. Between 1500 and 1660 CE, as many as 80,000 people, mostly women, were executed for allegedly performing magic throughout Europe. Their abilities varied from culture to culture. In Germany, witches were believed to fly. In the Western Alps, they held sexual rituals and supposedly fornicated with the devil himself. 
Many courts became more sophisticated in the 17th century. The evidence once needed to convict someone for witchcraft had changed. For instance, confessions extracted by torture were deemed unreliable and inhumane. Fewer witches were found guilty, and accusations in Europe dwindled. But this wasn't the case in the colonies. Here, witch trials became more popular. The courts were less regulated than those in Europe, and people were more superstitious. Colonists believed witches communicated with animals, told the future, and controlled minds with spells and potions. Most settlers were devout Christians and blamed their misfortunes like illness or death on the devil. And while Satan couldn't be put on trial for these crimes, his loyal witches could. So it made sense when Dr. Griggs suggested a witch had caused the girl's illness. It explained why his herbal remedies had no effect. Unfortunately, there was nothing else the doctor could do to help them. From there, things only got worse. Elizabeth and Abigail claimed they saw shadowy apparitions, the spirit of the witch responsible for their ailments. When Samuel and his wife asked the girls to identify their tormentor, they said they couldn't see the specter's face. Mary Sibley was a concerned neighbor of the Paris family. She suggested a test that could confirm the bewitchment. She instructed Tituba, an enslaved Caribbean woman of the Paris family, to bake a witch cake, a mixture of rye wheat and urine from the witch's victim. A victim's urine was said to contain traces of the dark magic afflicting them. The cake was baked in the ashes of the fireplace, then fed to the Paris family dog. Oddly, the exact fate of this pet was never recorded. In any case, it didn't seem to work. And Samuel Paris was enraged over the experiment. He claimed it was going to the devil for help against the devil. Samuel feared that using such charms would only encourage witches. And he may have been right, because shortly thereafter, the girl's symptoms intensified. They started to suffer from inexplicable convulsions. Their bodies contorted in violent and unnatural ways. They frequently gasped and gagged as if an invisible force was choking them. Shortly after, two other Salem residents fell ill with the same symptoms. Dr. Griggs' 17-year-old niece, Elizabeth Hubbard, and Elizabeth Paris and Abigail's 12-year-old playmate, Anne Putnam Jr. As the outbreak grew worse, the hunt for Salem's witch began. Coming up, dozens of colonists are arrested for witchcraft as the results turn deadly. Harcasters, you know the world can be chaotic and unpredictable, but how far would you go to turn the tides of favor in your direction? In the newest Spotify original from Parcast, we're taking a closer look at bad omens, good luck charms, and age-old traditions that just might have the power to change our fates. Each episode of Superstitions presents a new drama that unpacks a different belief. Can holding your breath while passing a cemetery save your life? Will carrying a rabbit's foot bring you luck? 
How can you go through life always avoiding the number 13? And why should you try? They may seem mystical, unusual, completely illogical. But one thing is certain. You ignore them at your own risk. You can find and follow Superstitions free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. To hear more podcast shows, search Parcast Network in Spotify's search bar and find a growing slate of thrilling new series to enjoy. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Now, back to the story. In 1692, two of Salem's children suffered from convulsions, tactile sensations, and hallucinations. They claimed spectral apparitions appeared before them, causing their symptoms. These invisible phantoms were thought to be the spirits of the witches themselves, and others were falling under their spell. For weeks, the victims were unable to identify these mysterious specters, but after town magistrates interrogated Elizabeth and Abigail, they finally admitted to seeing the phantoms' faces. There wasn't just one occultist in Salem. There were at least three. The girls named the family's slave, Tituba, as the primary specter. They also identified Sarah Good, a local beggar. The third was an elderly widow named Sarah Osborne. All three were social outcasts. Tituba allegedly dabbled in voodoo, an Afro-Haitian religion practiced in her home country of Barbados. Many in the American colonies saw it as a source of black magic, and 39-year-old Sarah Good relied on her neighbors for charity. This was frowned upon by the Puritan community, who valued hard work and self-sufficiency. Elizabeth and Abigail's playmate, 12-year-old Anne Putnam, named 49-year-old Sarah Osborne as her tormentor. Sarah's first husband was related to Anne, but died in 1674. He'd left his 150-acre farm to his sons, but Sarah attempted to keep the farm against his wishes. This threatened the rest of the Putnam clan and stained her reputation in Salem. After hearing the girl's testimony, the magistrate arrested all three of the accused women. Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne pleaded innocent, but were kept in jail to await trial. Oddly, Tituba eventually pleaded guilty and admitted she was a witch. She claimed that she'd made a pact with the devil who came to her and bid her to serve him. Tichuba said Satan impressed her with strange yellow birds and translucent cats that performed tantalizing tricks. He promised her mystical powers if she signed her name in his book, and she accepted his offer. During those interviews, Tichuba also said she was the one who pinched and scratched the girls, causing those sensations. She visited them as a specter while they slept, hoping to recruit them for Satan's purposes. 
Tituba also accused Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne of conspiring with her. The magistrate's greatest fears were confirmed. There was a satanic plot brewing in Salem, and with a confession from Tituba, they could finally put her and her conspirators on trial. Although in 1693, her confession was likely known to have been coerced. Her master, Samuel Paris, had beaten her until she admitted her guilt. The details about her relationship with the devil had allegedly been made up by her master. Yet her original confession was still enough to satisfy the local magistrates in 1692. The townspeople hoped now that these witches were in custody, the outbreak of Satanism would stop. Instead, things got worse. More Salem residents came forward claiming to have the same symptoms of bewitchment. Delirium, memory loss, disorientation, and difficulty speaking. They'd been bitten by invisible assailants. They were suffering from inexplicable seizures and had visions of ghostly apparitions. With Tituba, Good, and Osborne behind bars, the townsfolk were convinced there had to be more witches amongst them. Suddenly, no one was above suspicion. As the chaos reached a fever pitch, townspeople claimed to be tormented by spectral apparitions of their neighbors, friends, even their own spouses. Among those accused was the Paris family's neighbor, Martha Corey. She was a pious, church-going woman and popular in the community. Corey didn't show much sympathy for the imprisoned women, but warned the court examiners, saying, we must not believe all that these distracted children say. Days before this statement, the girls claimed Martha Corey's spirit had affected them as well. The town was stunned. If the religious Corey was in cahoots with Satan, anyone could be. And yet, the magistrates took the victim's words. Martha Corey was arrested. The townspeople needed very little evidence to drag someone before the magistrates. All it took was a testimony from someone loosely considered trustworthy. And if someone dared visit an accused witch in jail, that was enough to be implicated. Some historians believed Salem residents monopolized this fear and chaos to settle old feuds. Families that previously quarreled over land and financial disputes suddenly found themselves accused of witchcraft. In the case of Sarah Osborne, she'd wronged the Putnam family, and it's likely the people of Salem felt pressured to support Ann Putnam's accusations toward Osborne because they were afraid of being accused themselves. By the end of May 1692, around 60 people had been accused of witchcraft and imprisoned. In May, news of the outbreak reached the Massachusetts governor, Sir William Phipps, who ordered a court of Oyer and Terminer to be established. This special court was tasked with reviewing the evidence against the accused witches and deciding their punishment. Instead of one judge passing a sentence, the court consisted of nine judicial magistrates and several civilian jurors who determined the fate of the accused together. 
The first accused witch brought before the court of Oyer and Terminer was the approximately 60-year-old Bridget Bishop. She'd been accused of tormenting multiple townsfolk in spirit. When she entered the courtroom, her alleged victims wailed and contorted, claiming she was up to her same tricks. Bridget declared that she was as innocent as the unborn child. Although she was unable to provide any evidence outside of her word, and her defense did not sway the court. On June 10th, 1692, Bridget was hanged for witchcraft in a wooded area outside of Salem, known as Gallows Hill. The court assembled several times that summer. Eyewitnesses claimed to see witches perform impossible feats of strength, turn invisible, and eavesdrop on conversations. One man, John Willard, was reportedly accused of causing his grandfather-in-law's kidney stone. Some were examined for witches' marks, or blemishes like a mole, that were impervious to pain. Satan was believed to use these marks to identify his servants, but the most important and controversial testimonies included spectral evidence. At the time, clergy in England had traditionally denounced the use of spectral evidence, or the certainty that witches tormented their victims in spiritual form. They argued that seeing a person's spirit wasn't proof that they had pledged loyalty to Satan. They felt the devil was a trickster and could take the form of an individual without that person knowing or giving permission. Many colonies adopted this position, but Salem accepted spectral evidence as fact. In some cases, it was arguably all they needed to give someone the death sentence. On July 19, 1692, five other women were hanged for witchcraft, including Sarah Good, the local beggar. Her alleged co-conspirator, Tichuba, was supposedly granted clemency for her confession. For the moment, she remained in prison but escaped execution. Sarah Osborne, who withheld her husband's farm from his relatives, is believed to have died in jail of poor health on May 10, 1692. A month later, on August 19th, George Burroughs, a former Salem minister who was accused of being a demonic mastermind and recruiting people for Satan's work, was executed. Elizabeth and Abigail testified that Burroughs was involved in witchcraft. Other townspeople sided with the girls. They claimed his magical abilities were responsible for his physical prowess. Some alleged that he had not baptized his children, and his own former brother-in-law accused him of invisibly eavesdropping on his conversations. On the day of his execution, Burroughs walked up to the gallows and turned to the people of Salem. He flawlessly recited the Lord's Prayer, a feat believed impossible for a witch who'd renounced God but it wasn't enough to overturn the conviction. Burroughs was hanged and buried in a shallow grave with the other suspects. Another victim of the court was Giles Corey. He was an 81-year-old farmer and Martha Corey's husband. When Martha was accused by the young girls of Salem, he spoke up in her defense. Possibly in response, they accused him of being a witch as well. 
Giles found the accusations so preposterous that he refused to plead guilty or not guilty. Pleading also would have subjected his land to government seizure. Judges tried to force him to make a plea through an archaic punishment called pena forte dur. Large stones were piled on Giles's chest to restrict his breathing. After two days of this torture, he died. However, without the desired plea, his land passed to his heirs. The fourth and final round of executions occurred on September 22, 1692. Eight witches were hanged, including the previously accused Martha Corey. When the rest of Massachusetts heard about how far the spate of executions had gone, with high-class society members being accused of witchcraft, they petitioned the trials. It was time for Massachusetts Governor Sir William Phipps to step in. Phipps spent the summer of 1692 in Maine, fighting the French and their native allies. Upon returning from war that October, he finally learned how many innocent civilians had been hanged via the witch trials. Phipps was especially shocked to discover that his wife, Mary, had been one of the accused. She was supposed to appear before the court that fall. On October 29th, Governor Phipps disbanded the court of Oyer and Terminer and demanded that no further arrests be made. Several months later, in May of 1693, Phipps stepped in again and pardoned all witches awaiting trial. Within days, the accusations ceased and the symptoms of many of the afflicted disappeared entirely. On January 14, 1697, the town of Salem began the long process of repentance. The court ordered a day of fasting and soul-searching. The goal was for them to come to terms with their behavior and make peace with God. Still, it would be nearly 15 years before the colony legally restored the rights of these accused witches. They also issued reparations for the accused. Each person who had been accused of witchcraft was awarded 600 pounds by the colony of Massachusetts. It wasn't until 1957 that the state of Massachusetts formally apologized for the events of the Salem witch trials. But even today, there is disagreement about their cause. In 1706, when she was around 27 years old, Anne Putnam publicly apologized for her role in the trials. She was one of the only accusers to ever show remorse. Some historians believe that Elizabeth Paris, Abigail Williams, and Anne Putnam faked the symptoms of their bewitchment. They may have been acting out against their strict father and their deeply religious community to gain sympathy. Other historians disagree. They find it unlikely that a few troubled kids could convince an entire town to execute innocent civilians. Instead, they argue that the people of Salem really did experience those symptoms, at least psychologically. It's possible that this incident was what experts call a mass psychogenic illness, otherwise known as mass hysteria. Coming up, we'll explore the psychological phenomenon that may have sparked the Salem witch trials. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now, back to the story. To this day, it's unclear what caused the devout Puritans of Salem to accuse their neighbors of witchcraft. But one theory suggests that they were afflicted by a psychological condition known as conversion disorder, or mass hysteria. Mass hysteria happens when a group of individuals share the same collective fear and illusion of threats. Those affected may even experience physical symptoms of an illness despite the lack of physiological cause. This means it's possible that the bewitched victims of Salem weren't lying about their experiences after all. If you've ever watched a disturbing medical drama or read an article on a rare disease and thought, hey, I have those symptoms too, then you might be able to relate to this mindset. Though the symptoms people experience under mass hysteria vary, there are a few ways to detect the disorder. In the case of the Salem Witch Trials, Dr. William Griggs was unable to find any physical ailments in Elizabeth Paris or Abigail Williams that explained their symptoms. This might be considered the first red flag. Second, mass hysteria can cause people to behave out of character. Though the Puritan community of Salem believed in witches, their accusatory and violent actions toward one another was highly unorthodox, even by standards of the time. Another potential sign is that the individuals experiencing obsessive behavior are typically part of the same close-knit community. The Salem Puritans placed great importance on family and church. They knew their neighbors well, and everyone was involved in everybody else's business. They were an ideal petri dish where conversion disorder could breed. And the Salem witch trials were only one historical example of mass hysteria. One of the first known cases had been reported a century prior. In 1518, Frau Trophea was a resident of Strasbourg, a city of the Holy Roman Empire. On a hot day in July, Frau Trophea stepped into the street and began to twist, twirl, and shake. Allegedly, she danced in silence for nearly a week. Soon, others joined in. By August, 400 people were dancing nonstop with Frau Trophea through the streets of Strasbourg. Local doctors were at a loss. The theory was that the victims of the dancing plague had been affected by a fever, or what they called hot blood. 
Doctors thought dancing was the patient's way of relieving the heat of their fever. So instead of putting an end to the dancing, doctors encouraged it. The city of Strasbourg even constructed a stage and hired professional musicians to perform for the victims. This only made matters worse. Dancers collapsed from exhaustion. Some died as a result of strokes or heart attacks. The plague continued until September of 1518, when townsfolk coerced the dancers to a religious shrine. There, the unafflicted gathered and prayed for the victim's absolution. It's believed that the stress from the famines and plagues in the area triggered Frau Trophea and others to start dancing. Similar stressors may have even consumed the people of Salem in the 1600s. King William's War, for example, may have triggered the outbreak of hysteria that led to the witch trials. In 1983, a different event proved how mass hysteria could turn a close-knit community against one another. Like the Salem witch trials, this one began with a concerned parent and the possibility of satanic influence. In 1983, a woman contacted the Manhattan Beach Police Department in Southern California. She claimed that her two-and-a-half-year-old son was suffering from nightmares. He was also reluctant to sit down, which made her believe he had experienced physical anal trauma. The woman then accused the boy's preschool teacher, Raymond Bucky, of molesting him. Raymond worked at McMartin Preschool, a family business that was founded by his grandmother, Virginia McMartin. His mother, Peggy, was the administrator. His sister worked there part-time. Yet Raymond was the only male teacher at the school and the only one thought to be involved in the crimes. At least, at first. The police took the accusations very seriously and immediately questioned Raymond. Then, they arrested him for sexual abuse of a child, even though there was no concrete evidence against him. The police sent letters to 200 parents with children at McMartin Preschool. The document encouraged parents to talk to their kids about the abuse allegations. As was the case in 17th century Salem, the accusations came pouring in. Panicked parents feared their children may have also been a victim. Police told parents to contact what was then known as the Children's Institute International, or CII, a nonprofit organization aimed at providing therapy to abused children. But the CII employees may have made matters worse. In taped interviews with the McMartin Preschool students, CII therapists asked leading questions and refused to believe students who claimed nothing had happened. They repeated questions until the children supplied satisfactory answers, unintentionally manipulating them to make false confessions. Just like Salem's magistrates who questioned the girls about their phantom tormentors, CII's therapists were well-intentioned. The children weren't being asked to lie, but subconscious biases got in the way of their investigation. And unfortunately, their results sparked a media firestorm. Within weeks, the accusations against Raymond Bucky grew out of control. 
Raymond, his family, and other McMartin teachers were falsely accused of abusing dozens of children. As the situation escalated, parents claimed a satanic cult operated in the halls of the preschool. They even said children had been forced to participate in these ceremonies, which included live animal sacrifices in secret passageways within the school. The story was covered heavily in the media, which frequently presented these accusations as fact. A moral panic gripped America. Satanists were coming for their children. Soon, at least six more schools in Los Angeles were implicated. Then, dozens more across the country. The trial began in 1987, four years after the first abuse was reported. For the next two years, jurors were shown hundreds of hours of interviews. Most of them were filmed at the Children's Institute. However, the jury was never shown a shred of physical evidence. It was eventually revealed that the mother whose call sparked the investigation had made similar unproven claims about other individuals. Her credibility as a witness was discounted, and a thorough search revealed no physical signs of abuse, no secret passageways beneath the school, and no evidence of satanic rituals. In 1989, the Bucky family was acquitted on some counts while the jury was deadlocked on others. A hung jury inevitably cleared Raymond's name and granted him his freedom. Like the town of Salem in 1692, the community of Manhattan Beach appeared to be swept up in the phenomenon of mass hysteria. However, while the McMartins survived to tell their story, Many have maintained that at least some of the children displayed genuine psychological symptoms of abuse. The townspeople of Salem could have been overtaken by fear and paranoia, as many Americans were during the McMartin preschool trial. Then again, there may have been a physical cause for the girls' symptoms after all. Then, in 1976, Dr. Linda Caparell of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute claimed she'd found a possible biological explanation for the symptoms seen in the Salem witch trials. It's possible the people of Salem weren't under siege by Satan, but by a biological enemy, a poisonous one. It was a condition dreaded by Europeans in the Middle Ages, known as St. Anthony's Fire. Today, it's better known as ergotism. Thanks again for listening to Medical Mysteries. We'll be back next week with part two of Ergotism and the Salem Witch Trial. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. 
It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Evan McGahey, with writing assistance by Allie Wicker, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Hang a horseshoe above your door, keep a rabbit's foot in your pocket, and follow Superstitions free on Spotify. Listen every Wednesday for the surprising backstories to our most curious beliefs and thrilling tales that illuminate the mystical eeriness of our favorite superstitions. Superstitions.